You are listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. That offers insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma, a former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma that thrill, inform, and inspire for the journey. Today is week four of the Religion and Fiction Book Club, exploring chapters 12, 13, and 14 of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I can think of no better way to reflect on the reason for the Christmas season than diving into these three chapters. Thanks for listening. Glad you're here for the journey. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, glad you're here for episode four of the Religion and Fiction podcast. Also, the fourth week of the Religion and Fiction book club, exploring C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I got to say, it's entirely appropriate that we are diving into these chapters this week, chapters 12, 13, and 14, because it is Christmas in a few days. And the true meaning of Christmas, the reason for the season, as they say, is what these chapters are all about. God showing up in our story to rescue us from the consequences of our rebellion, saving and forgiving us traitors as Edmund was by offering himself as an atoning sacrifice as Aslan did for Narnia. And if you've watched the cinematic feature of this book, you know exactly what is in store for us in these chapters. Because Aslan, as I just mentioned, offers himself as a sacrifice for Edmund. You've got this very pagan, cult-like, sacrificial ceremony going on with the White Witch and all of these crazy beings hopping around and screeching and the war drums and the fires at the middle of the night. And in walks Aslan onto this altar symbolizing Jesus' own sacrifice on the cross for our own traitorous rebellion, in the same way that Edmund was traitorous towards Aslan. Now, in this session, I offer a powerful mashup of this clip of Aslan's sacrifice from the movie version, along with a retelling of the narrative of Jesus' death, read by a survivor of World War II who fought in the Dutch resistance movement. Ray Minima was the man's name, a dear guy who was in the first congregation that I pastored in. And one Easter, he wrote up the narrative from the Gospels of Jesus' sacrifice from the Garden of Gethsemane through the cross. And it was so powerful knowing what this man went through. And you could hear the emotion in his very heavily accented Dutch uh, English. And it's just an amazing way to dive deeper below the literary story of what's going on in the Chronicles of Narnia, and specifically this uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe novel, by connecting it to the religious aspects of the Gospels and Jesus' sacrifice. So you can listen to that in the book club session, the podcast episode, but know that that is coming and look for that. And it's going to be a real treat for you as sort of a supplement to the book club, but also as a reflection for your Christmas week. 
Like I said at the beginning, I can think of no better way than to reflect upon the true meaning of Christmas in these days leading up to this Christian holiday than exploring these chapters from this magnificent book that is such a prime example of the beautiful intersection of the sacred and story. Thanks for joining the book club. Enjoy this session. All right, welcome to week four of our virtual religion and fiction book club at the end of a very crazy year using uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, We have wanted to come together to find some enchantment and inspiration and escape after uh, a crazy year and super happy that you've come along for the ride and today we're going to be exploring chapters 12, 13, and 14 Uh, and it's really appropriate that we're exploring these chapters this week uh, because in a few days it's going to be Christmas and of course the true meaning of Christmas, the reason for the season as they say, is really what these chapters are all about in in the deeper aspects of the story that C.S. Lewis is telling about our own story and God showing up in it to rescue us from the consequences of our rebellion, saving and forgiving us traitors, as Edmund was, we discover in this week's chapters. Uh, and here is God showing up in our story to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice, just as Aslan did for Edmund. So join with me in week four, chapters 12, 13, 14. Let's get started. All right, so we want to begin this week with Edmund's redemption, which doesn't fully come about until around chapter 13, but in chapter 12, it's sort of set up. And the setup comes in this chapter when Aslan shows up in his world of Narnia, which of course is what God himself did that first Christmas by becoming one of us in baby Jesus, right? God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, as uh, one translator puts it, John chapter 1. In other words, God became very human, becoming One of us becoming a real live human being. And the historic Christian faith emphasizes this point, not only that Jesus was God, but he was also very human. And to us, this might seem a bit obvious uh, because 2000 years later, that's how the historic Christian faith understands Jesus's nature, right? Very God, very human, But this wasn't entirely clear for the early church. Uh, The early church struggled with how to describe God's two natures in in Christ, Christ's two natures, which led to some early heresies, actually. Uh, Early on, some Christians had a hard time believing that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was actually human. His divinity was another issue that they had trouble with. Uh, But this uh, part of our club, uh, this part of our session in our religion and fiction book club dealing with chapters 11, 12, and 13, or excuse me, 12, 13, 14, exploring uh, Aslan showing up in the story of these children in the story of Narnia coincides very clearly with God himself showing up in our story uh, as a human. And a lot of early Christians couldn't wrap their minds around this reality, this idea that the creator would stoop so low as to become like a creature, right? 
bearing all the trappings of creatureliness, hunger, constipation, smelly armpits, uh, needing to drink and, and sleep, and everything else that is a part of our human existence. And yet the book of Hebrews makes it clear that that's exactly what God did. He, in fact, took upon himself flesh and blood. He, in fact, became one of us, stepped into our story. And here in chapter 12, Aslan shows up in Narnia's story in order to break the power of the queen's magic in the very same way that God showed up in our human story, in the person of Jesus, to break the power of the devil over our world. And we get the first glimpses of the full meaning of Aslan, who he was, what he did for Narnia, as well as who Jesus was and what he did for us. And and we find these glimpses first in the comments that Lucy makes about Edmund on 128. And I want to read a little bit here because what she says is very interesting. About halfway through the page, Aslan says, Welcome Peter, son of Adam. Welcome Susan and Lucy, daughters of Eve. Welcome he-beaver and she-beaver. His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. They now felt glad and quiet, and it didn't seem awkward to them to stand and say nothing. But where is the fourth? asked Aslan. He has tried to betray them and join the white witch, O Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. And then something made Peter say, That was partly my fault, Aslan. I was angry with him, and I think that helped him to go wrong. And Aslan said nothing, either to excuse Peter or to blame him, but merely stood looking at him with his great unchanging eyes. And it seemed to all of them that there was nothing to be said. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, and this is where it is, for uh, this part of our study here. She says, please, Aslan, can anything be done to save Edmund? And then he says, all shall be done, said Aslan, but it may be harder than you think. Love that. Can anything be done to save Edmund? You know, Aslan is wondering where the fourth son of Adam is. And the beaver explains he's betrayed them, joined the white witch, which, of course, we ourselves have done in sinning, betraying God, running off, going astray, each of us to our own way, as the book of Isaiah says. Uh, But all is not lost. For as Aslan says, all shall be done but it may be harder than you think. Here, Aslan hints at what is to come in chapters 13 and 14, which we'll get to in just a bit. But here, we're, we're talking about Edmund and his betrayal, his, his, him becoming a traitor to all of Narnia, and especially to his brothers and sisters, to Aslan himself, which connects to our own betrayal of God, us becoming traitors of God by rebelling against him. And the beauty and magic of Edmund's story really begins to uh, show itself in the middle of chapter 13, when he comes together with Aslan, has a conversation with him after being rescued by the rescue party that Aslan sends out. And then Aslan comes back and presents Edmund to his siblings. He, Aslan says, here is your brother, and there is no need to talk to him about what is past. Love this, because, you know, we all know that Edmund has not been the best of characters throughout the story so far, right? He's been mean, he's been nasty, he's uh, betrayed his brothers and sisters, Narnia, Aslan himself, he's joined with the White Witch, the Queen, 
and uh, has not treated Peter well, Lucy well. He's been envious and just a really kind of a rotten character. And and but here there is this turn of redemption uh, because Aslan very well could have. Uh, turned him away. He could have sent him out. He could have banished him from Narnia. He could have done a whole lot of things in response to the way that Edmonds behaved, his his treacherous behavior and, and activities. But instead, he says, there is no need to talk to him about what is past. And I love that line because, what he, in essence, what's going on here is there is this forgiveness uh, there is this recognition that he's been one person and now he doesn't, we don't need to talk about that anymore because he's going to be another person. Uh, he's had a chat with Aslan. They've discussed some things and what's past is past. And there's this glimmer of the same hope that we have in our own story when we encounter our own Aslan, Jesus Christ. You know, he says, what's past is past. Uh, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, the scriptures talk about. Uh, the old is gone, the new has come. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, you are saved, as Romans says. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, as scripture says elsewhere where we find and discover that all of our acts of rebellion, our acts of unlove to God and to our neighbor are forgiven. They're forgotten. They're in the past. And this is the case with Edmund as well, which I love. I love that glimpse into the way that his his story is beginning to turn when he encounters Asland. And I wonder about our each of our own encounters with Jesus our own Lion of Judah, and the ways in which he has told us that our past is past. No reason to talk about that anymore. Uh, what is that past of yours that you have, that Aslan, that Jesus says we don't need to talk about anymore? Think about that. You don't need to comment in the comments necessarily, but if you do, go ahead. Um, but think about your own past and the fact that God showing up in this world as a as a baby, as Jesus showing up in our story and your story has told you what is in the past is in the past. No need to talk about that anymore. What does that mean for you? What does that do for you? Well, the story continues and uh, the, the witch, the queen, the white queen shows up in the middle of this story, in the middle of the chapter and she makes a very bold claim. She says to Aslan himself that you have a traitor there, Aslan, in your midst, in your world, in your party, amongst everyone gathered around you. You have a traitor there. Of course, everyone knows that she's talking about Edmund. And according to the White Witch, every traitor belongs to her and is her lawful prey. She even has the right to kill them, apparently, according to the, the deep magic, the law of Narnia. And this gets at our own condition in some way, doesn't it? Uh, the Bible reminds us in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all rebels. We're all traitors against God. The wages for our sin, our rebellion, is death. 
death in all forms, uh, which we see in the Garden of Eden at the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, death of our interpersonal relationships, death of creation, death of our intimacy with God, ultimately, literally death. And here at the end of the chapter, it looks like all is lost. Looks like it's hopeless, doesn't it? Looks, looks like the story's over for Edmund for the rest of Narnia. And Lucy wonders, can't we do something about it? This deep magic. Isn't there something you can work against it? You know, there's an echo of our own cries in this desire of Lucy, isn't there? Can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? As we come to the end of this year, we look at all the crazy that has happened that uh, reminds us of how broken and busted this world is, right? How enslaved the world is to the deep magic in our own reality and our own heart cries in the same way that Lucy does, doesn't it? Isn't there something we can do about this? Something that can work against it? Our own heart cries for the fix that will put this broken, busted world back together again. It cries out uh, for the fix that will put us back together again, to rescue us from ourselves, from the deep magic that holds sway over our hearts, our relationships, the, the things we do against each other, and the way we behave with God himself. And ultimately, it cries out for a fix for the ultimate wage we, we bear, death itself, doesn't it? We've, we might have know of loved ones who've passed from uh, coronavirus. I know at least three people, not immediately close to me, but people I've known growing up who were a little older and got the virus and passed away. You, you've heard about the, the death toll in your own country, perhaps in your own state or city. You may know people who've contracted this virus and passed away from it and died or died from other ways. And so our heart cries out, joining with Lucy, isn't there something that can fix uh, this dark magic that's come over us, our world? And we try and work harder and get more stuff, thinking that we can sort of make meaning out of the shattered pieces of our lives through job status or education and big cars and big houses, thinking that that will work against the deep magic. Uh, we try and earn our salvation to try and repair the the breach the, try and patch things up with God, don't we? We think that if we pray harder, read more, offer more penance, go to church more, that we can earn God's favor and push back against the dark magic that holds sway over us and has uh, created this gulf, this breach between us and God. We even have devised all these schemes to cheat death itself, thinking that somehow if we can upload our consciousness to su- a, a, a supercomputer we can live forever, which is a thing if you haven't heard about that. So we have all these ways in which we are trying to push against the deep magic, to repair this world, to repair ourselves, except the only thing that can bridge the gulf between humanity and God is God himself. The only thing that can repair, that can push against the deep magic is is God, something that he brings to the table, something that he could perform, which is why he came to be born of a virgin, to suffer and die on our behalf, to rise three days later. Christmas, which we celebrate in a few days, was that fix. It memorializes that fix. He was our fix. 
And Aslan has his own fix, doesn't he? He and the queen step aside to have a little chit-chat. At the end of chapter 13, page 144, we read that uh, Aslan says, You can all come back now, he said. I have settled the matter. She has renounced the claim on your brother's blood. And all over the hill there was a noise as if everyone had been holding their breath and had now begun breathing again, and then a murmur of talk. So Aslan alludes to this fact, this reality, this good news, that there is something that can be done, that that the matter has been settled regarding Edmund, and that brings us to chapter 14. Now we come to the climax of the book, and really the climax to God's own story of rescue, the sacrificial death of Aslan on the stone table, symbolizing Jesus' own sacrifice on the cross for our own treacherous rebellion. And to introduce this session, uh, this section of our virtual session this uh, week in our book club, I thought that it would create a bit of a mashup. Uh, several years ago, while pastoring, I took the Aslan sacrifice scene from the, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, that we find here in chapter 14, and superimposed a reading done by a dear man in our congregation by the name of Ray Minima. Ray Minima was a member of the Dutch resistance uh, the underground Dutch resistance movement in World War II, fighting against the Nazis. And, you know, his story, the depths of his story uh, just mashed up so beautifully with what happens on behalf of Edmund in this story, in chapter 14. Because, you see, Ray had seen firsthand, up close and personal, the sulfuric stench of evil, sin, and death. In his life, uh, as a young man with the Nazis storming through the Netherlands, all of Europe uh, broadly, but especially his own town, and his, his efforts to resist that evil, he understood like no one that I had known and had conversations with, the necessity for the fix that we find in chapter 14, but ultimately the fix that Jesus himself brought. And so his, so what Ray did was basically rewrote the, the sacrifice scene of, of Jesus in the Gospels, in his own words. And I've put that together with the sacrifice scene of Aslan in chapter 14. And I want to show that clip because it provides this powerful reminder of what happened 2,000 years ago, and why we celebrate what we do in a few days on Christmas Day. So take a look, have a listen, and consider your own story in relationship to this episode in the story of Jesus, and this story in chapter 14 when Aslan is sacrificed on behalf of Edmund. Jesus, the loving gentle, caring, and healing preacher was worried and sorrowful. After celebrating the Passover with his friends, they went out to the city onto the Mount of Olives. 
into the Garden of Gethsemane. It was already early evening and actually time to retire. So Jesus told his friends to take a rest and went on alone in that peaceful garden. But Jesus felt no peace and prayed and pleaded with God, his Father, if it is all possible, take this cup away from me. But not my will, but yours be done. God the Father heard his beloved son cry for help and sent an angel from heaven to comfort and encourage Jesus. And then Jesus went back to his friends and found them sleeping, unaware of the tragedy what was happening around them. Another sorrow for Jesus. Why could you not watch with me just for this little while? Jesus went away alone again to pray for the safety of his friends. He knew what was going to happen that evening and the next day, and that their enemies were already there while his friends were sleeping. At the same time, a band of soldiers and high priest servants led by Judas had surrounded them, and Jesus was taken away to the chambers of the high priest. There a gathering of the full, hateful Pharisees was waiting for the captive Jesus. They shouted their hateful accusations at Jesus. Another great sorrow for the loving, gentle, hearing Jesus. Jesus did not talk back at the false accusations except when the high priest asked him, Do you claim to be the Son of God? Yes, Jesus answered. You were looking at him. That was enough for them to condemn Jesus to death. The next morning at a Roman guard court of Pilate, after questioning Jesus, Pilate found that no fault worthy of that sentence. He had Jesus flogged and tortured with a crown of thorns pushed on his head. But the fanatic, hateful, screaming crowds in front of Pilate's court threatening vengeance made Pilate give in, washing his hands in innocence, asking them, what they wanted done with Jesus. Crucify him. Crucify him. The loving, gentle, caring Jesus was pushed to carry his heavy, rugged cross onto Golgotha. And there Jesus was laid down on his cross. His arms stretched and held by the soldiers while the iron spikes were hammered into and through his hands and feet into the rugged cross. Then the cross was put upright with Jesus hanging from his torn hands and feet. The loving, gentle, caring Jesus never complained or asked for mercy. 
You only prayed, Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they are doing. And the man crucified next to Jesus was saved by grace. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Suddenly, it became dark. Very, very dark. And silent. And Jesus cried out in agony, My God, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Why, Father? Why, Father, where are you? Why? What a powerful way to introduce uh, this final chapter in our session this week. Um, Taking a long, hard look at what Jesus means for us and what Aslan meant for Edmund in his sacrifice on behalf of his own treacherous behavior. the depths of meaning that Jesus bears for our own treacherous behavior. And I wonder what you think about this sacrifice that we have of Aslan that he offered on behalf of Admind. What do you think about Jesus' own sacrifice for the sins of the world, for your own sins, your rebellion against God and his way? You know, this clip and Ray's own words kind of mashed up together with this this scene from chapter 14 uh, perfectly dramatically depicts the pain and agony and humiliation that Jesus Christ himself would have went through. And I won't describe it all right here right now because it's pretty uh, R-rated, if you will. Um, But imagine Jesus up on the cross the pain, the agony, the humiliation that he would have experienced in the same way that Aslan did there up on the the stone table, Uh, all of his hair being cut off, sheared down to his skin, his mane, the sign of pride uh, and power being just stripped away, being strapped down on the table, being uh, mocked, and beaten against, and uh, and finally killed, slaughtered. And of course, Susan and Lucy believe that all is lost in the death of Aslant, uh, that the queen has triumphed, that Narnia is doomed. The disciples would have felt the exact same way. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, you, he, he was with his uh, disciples there, they, the crowd, the, the, the guards, the, the, the Roman guards, the temple guards came to take Jesus away, to try him, to execute him. They would have believed that all was lost. They were looking to Jesus as their Messiah. And in the Jewish worldview, a dead Messiah was a failed Messiah. They thought that he was it. He was the one that, 
that the holy scriptures that Yahweh himself had been promising from the very beginning to fight the final fight, uh, to put their world back together again, to vanquish their enemies, to finally bring about the rule of his kingdom and reestablish his reign on earth. And there is their, their savior, their Messiah, nailed upon the cross, dying, and then actually giving up his last breath. They would have thought that exactly what Susan and Lucy thought. It's over with. It's, it's done for. We're doomed. The world is doomed. But of course, all was not lost. The story wasn't finished. And we'll discover why next week. In our final week, we'll discover what happened uh, in the final chapters in the story of Aslan. And, and of course, relating that to the story of Jesus and our own story. Uh, but the beauty is that what we celebrate this week in the, in, in the season of Christmas, uh, the celebration on the day of Christmas is that God, like Aslan, stepped back into our story to become one of us, uh, to die the death that we should have died, shedding his blood for us traitors to offer forgiveness for our sins, to pave the way for repairing our relationship with God and ultimately putting us in this broken, busted world back together again when he returns at the very, very end of the story to make all things new. And I pray uh, that you would find in these chapters this week a, a, a sweetness to them in connection to the story of Jesus and how he connects to your own story. And I pray that they would illuminate this season and Christmas Day in a way that it hasn't before in light of what Aslan did for Edmund, what Jesus did for you. All right, that wraps up week four in our virtual religion and fiction book club. If you have any more thoughts or questions about this week's reading, things you noticed, things you thought about that I missed that I didn't cover, drop them down below in the comment section. Would love to hear what you have to say and uh, your own reaction to these chapters and uh, especially who Jesus means for you and, and what he did for you. Uh, what that means for you this Christmas at the end of a very crazy year, which reminds us so desperately how broken this world is and how desperate we are for the rescue that Jesus provides. That little baby that came in full humility to uh, live the life we could not live, to die the death we should have died in order to pave the way for our rescue. Thanks so much for joining our adventure through Narnia, exploring the intersection of the sacred and story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What a great way to reflect on the true meaning of Christmas by reflecting on the sacrifice of Aslan for Edmund, as well as the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all of us. Be sure to subscribe to receive insights into the sacred and story. Until the next episode, Merry Christmas.